Thank you guys so much for joining us online. Thank you guys for being here. My name is Tyler, as I think you know. There's a study guide if you want to jump, grab it on the way out to do a little bit deeper dive. And last week, I'm just trying to find my spot here. This is what happens when I don't mark where I want to go because I just flick pages. There we go. Last week, we talked about the Israelites receiving the manna and the quail from Exodus 16 from heaven as God supplied. And we ended last week, obviously, God used the manna and the quail um, to provide for the Israelites in the desert. They didn't have food. But obviously, we have a lot of food all over the place, right? We, uh, we have unlimited options when it comes to what to eat. So what is the spiritual lesson of God providing manna and quail for us? It was the what does it look like for us today, how we use what God has given us all, which is time, talent, and treasure? What does it look like for us to use our times, our, our time, our talent, and our treasure? And when the Israelites hoarded the manna, right, it went stale and moldy. And so the, the, the question for us is then, what does it look like for us not to hoard our time, our talent, and our treasure? We all have the same amount of time. We have different talents. We have different treasure. But... God wants us to use that for his purpose, not to hold on to it in some ways. And what's miraculous is God is actively rescuing. If you've noticed, just we've gone through Exodus, which will wrap up our Exodus portion of this story this morning. What's miraculous is God actively, he rescued and is actively rescuing such an undeserving people, right? He rescued and is actively rescuing. And so that's the thing, right? It's the well, we could all point to this thing where God did something in our past, but then we also walk out of that as well. We keep walking into the rescue that he's provided, and we'll, he'll continue the rescue. He brought Israel out of Egypt, and the time after time he provided for them in spite of their grumbling, right? He's given them water and now food, and after rescuing them, their response is not good, right? We'll see that in just a moment. And I think when we look at this collection of stories, at least for me, when I look at this collection of stories, you almost look at it like there's no room for them to complain. They have no reason to complain. God has come through time and time and time and time again. No reason. Right? Surely they'll get it this time. Right? Surely they've got it figured out. Surely they understand their issue is that God is faithful in spite of what they have or what they don't have, and yet they go back to doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. I think that's interesting to me. It's that they come back to the place of, I don't know where you are, God. I don't know if I could trust you, even though I've trusted you and I'm trusting you, but I don't know what it looks like in the moment. Similar to how we look in the mirror sometimes, right? Like if you figure, like you wake up in the morning, you're like, gosh, I'm right back at this place I don't want to be. Why am I dealing with this again? Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's this doubt. Maybe it's just this absolute thing that it has to go this way is going the complete opposite way. Why can't I do something different? Why can't I be something different? God, can I trust you? Just like Israel, God showed that he's faithful in spite of them. And we can trust God and we, you know, I think we'll get to that in this moment. But just also this set of stories, it's fun too. It's kind of funny as well, right? Even though, there's real-world circumstances in life or death moments in the passages we've been looking at, just like there are in our own story and where we are in God's story in the present. It's also, it's like this movie, right? Like you watch this movie and you're like, hey, don't do that, right? 
If you do that, it's going to come back to haunt you. Don't open that door. Don't go down in that basement. Don't choose that because we know decisions and stories usually have a way of coming back to haunt the person that made them, right? That's half the movies we watch these days, right? Follows the same narrative as something, this person who is undervalued figures out who they are and then they make decisions and then one comes back to haunt them and then they somehow overcome on the back end. And I started thinking as well, like our life, is, it's like a, a river in some ways, right? Lives are like rivers where there's this stream of our life that flows from where it started to where it's going to end on this side of eternity. And decisions, like we were just talking about in the movie, it's like, don't go in the basement because that's where the person that's going to murder you is, right? Like, or it's the, don't look back because they always look back and they fall and then some person that they're running away from always catches them, right? Or it's the... I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I have to do something in the moment. And then they live to regret those choices in those movies. Similar to us, our, our, our lives are like rivers, right? They're always flowing. And the decisions that you and I make are like boulders that get placed in the stream of our life. See that? They're like boulders, these big rocks. And what do big rocks do to water? They move the waters around. They move the waters around. They shift the waters around. And rerouting the river because that's what our life is. It's composed of these big blocks of these decisions that we've decided. And then the smaller ones and the smaller ones build. Or to put it simply like this, what happens upstream affects the downstream. Right? Like When we get this, right? We've got dams in this state and they hold the water. And when they decide to... I was fishing some t- one time with a friend up in uh, Possum Kingdom. We were below the dam and... Uh, we were down on the river, we had our waders on, and it was fine, like the river was flowing, and they just stalked with trout, and so we were like, this could be a great day, we're going to do some fly fishing, we're going to catch some trout, put them back, and, and, and enjoy the day. And we hadn't been down in the water maybe five or six minutes, and we noticed the water was moving a little bit quicker, but it was just out there. So like, okay, that's interesting, the water's moving quicker, no big deal. And then we look behind and we see the water kind of creeping up behind this and rising. And so we're on this little island that's now starting to get cut off. By the river, and what we didn't know is that they had released the dam, and they were dumping water from the lake. We didn't hear the horn, and I'm like, "How could you not hear the horn? You're like three miles down river. It's in a canyon. Surely that thing echoes. They don't have a horn at the bridge, which is the first major crossing." And we're like, "Well, this is probably not good." And five minutes later, where we were standing was covered with water, like the tree behind me was under the water. If we hadn't have made the decision to leave right then, we would have been swept down river. Matter of fact, there was a boat launch across the river from us where we got out, and it came so fast, it took their chairs, it took their cooler, it took everything. We just watched all their stuff just be swept away. And they were on concrete, right? Sometimes things that happen upriver and decisions we make upriver always affect downriver realities. Which brings us to truth number one. Truth number one is this. Downstream realities are always informed by upstream decisions. Right? Downstream realities are always informed by upstream decisions. And in the story this morning, for the third time, the people of God are not trusting God and His motives. And the hope is that we could always trust God. And we'll see that in the story. But sometimes... Upstream decisions lead to downstream realities. The God's people got into this habit of 
doubting God on a regular basis, and I wonder if it led to the reality we're going to look at just real quickly. The Bible is cyclical, right? The Israelites are going to complain against God a third time, and complaining is denying God of who He is and His power. So it got me to thinking, are there other stories in God's Word where that happens? And actually, there's one that's pretty famous, probably the most famous, where God a person from God doubted who God was. So we're going to start this morning in John 18, starting in verse 15. John 18, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read this passage over us. John 18, starting in verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. So Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now they're bringing Jesus before the authorities. And the, the, the other disciple is John referring to himself. So it's Peter and John. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus in the court of the, into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl, girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Peter needed someone to vouch for him to come in because he was not known. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, which, by the way, she knows who he is because she's bringing him in because of what John said to her. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And now the servants and the officers have made a charcoal, fi- a charcoal fire excuse me, because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand and saying, is this that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself next to the fire, right? So they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, and he said, I am not. It's number two. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? He should because he's the uncle of the guy that Peter just maimed. And Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. And so if you know the story, Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times. And then when the rooster crowed, it broke through the fog of what Peter was doing, denying who Jesus was, denying his affiliation with him, denying the hope that Jesus had brought him, the power that Peter was walking in with him for three years. And like a warning bell of a dam dumping water on the river, Peter awakes from his fog and says, Oh, wait, I have. I just did what he said I was going to do. After Peter argued with him, and again, upstream habits and decisions influence downstream environments and responses. Upstream habits and decisions influence downstream environments and responses. Before the people, before Peter, the people of God deny who God is, and that is their history in the desert. 
The people of God deny who God is over and over all throughout Israel's history. They come to him. They fall away. They come to him. They fall away. They never find what it looks like for them to just walk in step with him to the best of their ability. There's no middle ground. It's either all the way in or all the way out for God's people. I just think it's interesting. If that's their history in the desert, here is Peter, a member of the people of God. Right? Thousands of years later from Exodus. And arguably not just the member of the people, but the person. The person for God. And Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Isn't that interesting? Right? Don't miss this. Peter following Jesus from his arrest in the garden, a place of lushness, of safety, of hiddenness, of privacy, a place of prayer, to the place where Jesus is going to lose his life in the middle of a vast desert of religion. See that? A vast desert of religion. Peter denies Jesus in the middle of safety and provision in the middle of the desert of Old Testament religion, trying to earn your way to God. Isn't that interesting? Peter, Jesus' person who Jesus enables to do great things for him in the kingdom, after all, he has seen denies the hope and power of Christ. It's like the person of God saying, I don't know if I could trust his power anymore, Right? It's a little too dangerous. He's, he's getting way out there on the edge. He's getting out there on the edge. I'm getting a little more noticed. What am I going to do? My, my life is at stake. And just like Peter, you are God's person too. And we vacillate from loving him and trying to figure out where he is. And, like, and sometimes Jesus calls us to live on the edge. Sometimes he calls us to live on the edge. Which brings us to truth number two, to be a person of God means you have to follow God even when it feels like it might cost you your life. That's the gospel. If the gospel is Jesus giving his life away for you and for me to be his follower, to be identified by him, to live like him, to love like him, to serve like him, to be little Christ, that's what a Christian is. To be little Christ means that we follow him even when it feels like it might cost us our life. And there is the great problem because I like my life. We like our lives. We like the comfort of our lives. We love the security of our lives. We love the ease of our lives, the convenience of our lives. Jesus sometimes gets in the way of that. But yet we're also called to follow because it's in the trials and in the following of God where you and I get remade into the likeness and for his purposes. It's in the trials of Israel where they get remade into the people of God according to his purposes. All right? I had a conversation recently about someone who was trying to find their purpose. This is like six months ago. And my question to them was, are you following God to the hard places and to the unsafe places? Because I don't think you and I could find our purpose without doing that. We might get a sense of it. We might get a little taste of it. But what this person was telling me like six months ago was that it's like, it's like I could see it, but I just can't take a hold of it. And it's because to get there, you have to go there. To get there, you have to go there. We have to be willing to go there. And just like his people in the wilderness, God leads us to unsafe waters 
Not to depend on ourselves, not to think our way through it, not to hope our way through it, but to depend on Him. Isn't that great? That's God's greatest gift of mercy is that we get to depend on Him because in that dependence we find purpose. And I would say this, in that dependence we find independence from ourselves. We find independence from ourselves. Francis Chan, if you're familiar with him, pastor and a teacher. He's led churches in Southern California. He left to go to Northern California. He left that church to go all around the globe to win people for Jesus. This was like the guy, right? Like one of the guys of the guys that is an American pastor. And I love just the example of him because he leaves the convenience and the comfort of his pastorate to go do really, really hard work for the gospel because he thought Jesus' sacrifice was worth it. Right? He thought Jesus' sacrifice was worth it. In a recent teaching a couple years ago on peace in the storms, that's the name of it. We'll share it this week if you want to listen to it. He made this analogy on how to find peace and hope. And it is to embrace the trial. You want to find peace and hope where you are? You embrace the trial. You don't shy away from the trial. You embrace the trial, which is the exact opposite of usually what we do, right? You feel like you're close to the cliff, right? What do you do? You slowly back away from the cliff, right? You see the water coming down on the river? What do you do? You get the heck out of there instead of floating down the river, right? That's the exact opposite of what we want to do. We embrace the trial because embracing, we find God has a purpose for the trial. When you find no hope, it's where we don't see God's hand that might be moving in spite of all the hard hard circumstances. So Francis, I call him Franny. I I call him Franny. I've met him once, but I don't think he does. I call him Franny, which is fine, but don't tell him. Anyway, so so Franny uses this um, analogy, and he talks about silver refining, right? Like if some of us have silver somewhere in our house or in our apartment or on our body or somewhere, right? Maybe it's the feeling you have in your mouth, right? But when silver gets refined, just like gold, the metal has to be heated up, right? And when it gets heated up, the impurities bubble to the surface. And then they take this thing and they rake it across, right? They call it dross. Uh, They rake it and then they heat it again. And then they rake a little bit more, and they heat it again, and they rake a little bit more, and they heat it again, and they rake it a little bit more, over and over and over and over until it gets pure. Does that sound like your life sometimes? Like you feel like you're just heated over coals, and, you, and then God rakes a little bit back, and you're heated over coals, and you rake a little bit back, and it happens over and over and over. God, when, 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 when is this heat going to stop? Here's where it stops, right? At least for the silver piece. I can't say for you and for me because I don't know what God's up to. But what I do know, and this this is Francis's analogy, he says, the impurities rise, they scrape it off, and they know, the people who are doing this, the purifiers, know when the silver is pure and free from imperfections is when they can see their own reflection in the silver. Isn't that beautiful? Like it's so pure that it acts like a mirror. Which brings us to truth number three. Trials are the heat that bring out the impurities in each of us and become the mirror for our lives. You want to avoid trials? 
You want to do everything that we can to walk away from that trial, not to press into that hard thing, not to have the hard conversation, not to, what, you know, like push into the hard things, then we avoid the thing that God is using to make him more like Jesus. All right? Trials are the heat that bring out the impurities in each of us and become the mirror of our lives. And I'm reminded of that scripture where Paul says, you know, we look in a mirror dimly and then we walk away and we forget who we are. I think that's because we do everything that we can in our power and our efforts to avoid the trials of our lives. There's a reason why we forget what we look like. Because who God sees us and how we see ourselves are sometimes a little different. And how God uses trials and how we look at trials is very much different. All right? Trials are the heat that bring out the impurities in each of our lives. So whenever I listen to Francis Chan or read his book, like he makes me want to walk through a wall because I'm like, this is the guy that actually put his money where his mouth is. Imagine that, right? By the way, if you're interested, there's a study that starts on February 12th that's actually studying a Francis Chan book called The Forgotten God. You want to be challenged? Be a part of that study. You want to figure out where God is in your life? Francis Chan has a unique way of turning the mirror on yourself and asking the hard question and then showing you the pathway to move forward. I love that. I have a couple of those people in my life that when I talk to them, even though they say it's hard and they'll listen to me and they'll say, yeah, that's really hard. And then they always say, but Jesus is worth it. And then I feel like I can walk through the wall for him. Peter, who wouldn't be who he was without the denials. You get that, right? There's a reason why Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times, because Jesus knew that Peter wouldn't be the Peter that he needs him to be without denying Jesus because of the trial. So you think about like this tri- the trials that we face or the things that should be avoided because it says something bad about me, and when actually God takes that and uses it for his- your good. Peter wouldn't be who he was without the denials, and you can't be who you are supposed to be without trials. And I think it's sad that denials and trials are plural. When I was reading, I was like, oh, without our trials. Like, it's like unfortunate on this side of eternity, it takes more than one trial for me to figure out who God wants me to be. It takes more than one circumstance for us to figure out, just like the people of Israel. And Israel can't be who they are without their trials. Israel can't be who they are without their trials. So let's transition back to Exodus 17. Back to our thing. So I just wanted to draw a connection from what happens is happening in the desert to what we see happen on the other side of Jesus' birth and see the similarities this morning. Right? But back to Exodus 17. Let me read this over us. All the congregation. So last week, as I said, they... God gave them manna and quail, and then we get to 17. So he's moved them out of the Red Sea. He put them to the place of the, of the water that they couldn't drink, made it drinkable, and now he's provided them food. So surely they've got it, right? Let me get to chapter 17 in Exodus, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages. So a lot of people, they're moving out in groups according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Repidim, here you go. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. 
And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? We're following God here. Like, why is your issue with me? It's not with me. A lot of times it's easier to have an issue with someone than to have an issue with God because then we have to face God while he faces us. Get that? There's no water. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Here's this line again. To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. And so Moses cried to the people, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready. I'd like to hate to see what ready is, right? Because it says they're almost ready to stone me. And verse 5 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taken with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike strike." the rock and water shall come out of it come out of it and the people will drink and Moses did so inside of the elders goodness gracious I'm like excited for football today I can't talk inside of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord by saying here you go is the Lord among us or not on the backside of doubt that's what our hearts say is the Lord among us or not? So, verse 2, people, the people are quarreling again. And Moses said, why do you fight with me? Why do you test the Lord? Which, let me give you the translation. Here's the Hebrew translation into English. I'm following God just like you, and I'm on the same ride as you. Is this the right response from leaders? Right? That's the question, right? That's what they're saying. And Moses is like, they're like, Moses, I've got a problem with you because you keep leaning in this place. And he's like, well, hold on a second. Why do you fight with me? Why do you test the Lord? I'm following God just like you. So you're like, how do we get where we get? Well, we're all just following God together, right? And I'm on the same ride. But here's the goodness in Moses' example. He's saying, but I'm with you. And so that's the right response from a leader. If you have a leader or someone that you follow that's not willing to join you, then they're not leading you, right? If they're not willing to follow, to follow along with you, they're not on the same ride with you, All right? And I love Moses' example. He's just saying, well, your problem's not with me, right? Why are you testing the Lord? Has he not done enough for us? Has he not proved himself? And even Moses must have doubts, right? But he's with them. He's joined them. He's following the Lord with them. And in verse 3, the people thirsted for water and asked, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us here? I love that. Just like, obvious, the obvious question. It's not like they haven't said it different ways, right? Our meat pots were full. Now we don't have any food in the desert. At least we had water in Egypt, but we are by this pool of bitter water that we can't drink. Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us here, Moses? And God's people questioning God's motives and abilities is telling God that we should be God instead of him. Right? When we do that, which it's a natural response. It's a fleshly response. So you're like, well, I would never do that. Actually, we do it all the time. But what happens is when we do that is we have to become aware that we're doing it and then actually repent and change our thinking about what God might be up to. 
it's okay to ask. God's a big enough God to handle our questions. Trust me, right? Like I ask him stuff all the time. He's big enough to handle our questions. Are we obedient enough to follow in spite of his answers? Are we obedient enough to follow in spite of his answers? Verse 5, what are we to do, Lord? Tell the people to press into their circumstances because as we've said over and over, God wants to form us in these trials, not remove them. God wants to form us in these trials. He doesn't want to just fix things. Which leads us to verse 6. You want hope for your life and your situations? This is it. I just want to read it again. Verse 6 says, This is amazing. Don't and, I, and and again, like I've I've been thinking about this for weeks. So part of what I'm about to say has been the genesis of this story that we're going to continue on. It's been this verse here, and he says, "Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. I will stand before you on the rock." That's the whole point of this whole series that's going to go till Easter. That God stands before us on the rock. He stands before us of the problems that we're facing. He goes before us because he knows that we need him. God goes before us and tells them, I will meet them at the rock. Which leads us to truth number four. God leads us to places that have no life. Don't miss this. God leads us to places that have no life so he can meet us there and we can find life in him. We can find life in him. He led them to a place with, no, with bitter water that they couldn't drink, right? That's, I actually think that might be worse than having no water is looking at water that you can't drink, right? Like, have you ever been so thirsty that you've grabbed the garden hose? You're like, I don't know if this is clean, and then it doesn't taste very good, but it's good enough, right? God leads us to places that have no life so he can meet us there and find life in him. He led them to a place with no water that they could drink, a place where they didn't have any food. And once again, he led them to a place where there is no options for them at all. And what do they do? They doubt. And the difference in Exodus 15 is, as I said, they couldn't drink the water, but now there is none. And God comes through in spite of their doubt, and he offers us that. Do you believe that? Your thing, the thing that you're carrying, the thing that you need hope, the thing that you don't know how it's going to work, the thing that you're not sure how you get from point A to point B, that thing that's been hanging over you for months, or even years, if that's even such a thing, which is a hard, hard, hard place to be. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your finances, right? Maybe it's just the world doesn't work the way that it should, and I think it should work the way that I think it should, right? Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just that. God comes through for us just like he comes through for Israel. And here's why. Because the desert, and the stories we've been looking at for the last three weeks, is not about giving thirsty and hungry people food and water. That's not what it's about at all. It's not about giving thirsty and hungry 
people, food, and water. Which leads us to truth number five. God in Christ has gone before all of us to provide a pathway through our desert. Do you believe that? God in Christ has gone before all of us to provide a pathway through our desert. It's interesting, isn't it? God's leading the people through the desert. You know the story, right? Cloud by day, fire by night. Kind of hard to miss the cloud by day and the fire by night, right? So we know where he's going. And the issue is that, God, we don't know where you are. It's just we don't want to go that way. God's people don't want to go that way, right? Because that's hard. And it requires sacrifice and hard work and all the things. It's not that we don't know what, the, what, didn't know where he was or where he was headed. We're just like, can we go that way? How about that way? But no, God calls us to go that way. And I think it's interesting. Just like that, God has decided his answer to them was not just to make manna from, and don't miss this, right? Not throwing a log in the pool, not causing bread to grow on the ground and quail to fall out of the sky, right? Instead of God saying, hey, I'm going to meet your immediate need, now he says, I've led you to a place where there is no water. And instead of giving you water by having it miraculously rain in the desert, which it never does, he says, actually, my answer to your problem is me. Is me. And I will go before you and meet you on the rock. Now, what does that have to do with Christ? This is beautiful. And it comes back to 1 Corinthians. Love that, right? God in Christ has gone before all of us to provide a pathway through our deserts. And we just spent a year almost in Corinthians, right? It's nice to be out of Corinthians. And I think it's interesting. The genesis of this sermon series puts us right back there because we blew through this portion. I remember where we were in the text and where we were in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And we blew right through it. But here we go. You ready? This is Paul writing about idolatry. Because, by the way, before you throw it up there... When we don't believe in who God is, we don't trust him and his power and his motives, it's idolatrous. Okay, that's why Paul's writing about it in 1 Corinthians. Verse 1, chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, talk about Moses, were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. I mean, this is Exodus 15, 16, 17, right? We're all passed through the sea and we're all baptized in the Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. See, excuse me, and all ate in the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was who? Not God, but Christ. Isn't that glorious? Not God, but Christ. Christ, in pre-incarnate form, met the people to supply their need. And just like Moses struck the rock, right? We've got the staff, you know the story. He strikes the rock just like he parted the Red Sea and water flows out. Your hope this morning is dependent upon not you striking the rock, but this. Christ was struck for you and I to drink deeply from him. Christ was struck for you and I to drink deeply from him. And not just in this morning and not just in this moment. But every day, because our great hope 
praise God is in him who never relents and never runs dry. He never relents and he never runs dry. So I think the band's going to come back up. Because here's the question. What are you thirsty for? What are you hungry for? The world would say, back away from whatever that is and find something else. Find a substitute. Right? Satan would say, you can't trust the Lord in the middle of all that. Back away. Back away from the ledge because he wants to throw you off the ledge. Interestingly enough that Satan tested Jesus by saying, hey, if you trust the Lord, what should you do? Throw yourself off the ledge. And it's interesting how that's what it feels like when we have trials and things we have no hope in. But we have a Savior who never relents and never runs dry. So the question I want to ask is, or the thing I want to ask of you this morning is, is like, we're going to sing? I want you to confess where you need God and ask Him, where is the water that you need? Because you don't have the water. I don't have the water. But there's a God that goes before us and meets us at the rock. Right? You might be drinking water you shouldn't. You might not see the water right next to you. But there is water that we could ask for from Jesus right now. Maybe you're not asking. Maybe you don't want the water that you know he wants to give you. Right? And so as we do that, as we sing, if there's doubt or hope and you want prayer, and you want to come forward, come forward and pray. Right? If you want to grab someone next to you and say, hey, can you pray with me for just a moment? I want you to pray over me because I've got this thing that I don't think I could carry on my own. Ask to do that. Maybe you don't want to do that, but you want to do it afterwards. Like we'll have people up front that want to pray with you. You could pray with us afterwards. But here's what I know. We don't fix any of this or any of that thing that you're in your heart without prayer. Right? And so like we can't ignore these opportunities. Because whether you want to say it or not, this is an upstream moment. Agreed? Because what we do right now, what we do right now in this season dictates where the river goes because God is that kind of God that he's going to allow us to participate or not participate with him. It could be that he wants us to place a boulder with a decision or a choice or a mind change right here and he won't force us to do it because he asks us to follow him and walk with him in a relationship. Will you stand and pray with me? So God, just as we just pause for just a moment, I pray, Lord, that we would be honest with you. And we'd be honest with ourselves. And when I think about, Lord, um, all the things that are before us, just in my own life, just as a follower of you, and then you throw on top of the husband and the father and all the other stuff, Lord, there's lots of things I have I need hope in and there's nobody any different than that we need you and I'm thankful that you said and that you did you just didn't do it then you keep doing it you always go before us and meet us at the rock so God I'm thankful for that and my prayer is that as we sing
And some of us will pray and some of us will drop the boulder right where you want us to do. My prayer is that we'll see the water that you've put around us or the food that you've given us. And I'm not talking about the stuff that's in our fridges or what we're going to eat tonight when we're watching a game. Lord, I'm talking about the water and the food, the spiritual food that Paul was talking about in Corinthians that's spiritual. And then we get to be, walk into that newness and walk into this season. Because that's what I think this moment is. So God, I pray that your spirit would move. I pray that we would sing. I pray that we would glorify your name because, God, you are worthy of all praise. So, Lord, let us sing. Let us pray. And let us drop some boulders. It's in your name. Amen.